Welcome to Federalist 2.0. This is a new podcast where we explore the ways in which the Constitution, our instruction manual for how to run a government, could be improved. I'm your host, Jeff, and you can reach me at federalistreboot at gmail.com. Now, on with the show. In the last episode, we talked about the need for a new Constitution and discussed why we need to do something big and radical rather than small and incremental. We talked about the Constitution as the instruction manual for how to run a country, um, almost an owner's manual, if you will. So then the natural question is, what then should go into this new owner's manual? What changes are necessary? I have a mental list, as I'm sure every person who's given any serious thought to the subject has. But it seems best to me to start from the original Constitution. I know there will be some opposition to that. It's flawed in many places, but it was also inspired. It held within it a view of government that balanced the idealistic and the skeptical, the radical with the cautious. And I think that's important here. As we stated in the first episode, policy should rarely find its way into the Constitution. When we do find ourselves beginning to write policy, it really should be kept to broad principles, not individual policies. Legislators write laws. Constitutionalists write governance. It might be tempting to try to ensconce certain rights or restrictions that we feel passionately about within the founding document but we should really be cautious of these impulses and fight against them because they bring out the worst in us and they undermine the opportunity to craft a new and better government. So then where should we start? Well, why not begin with the start of the document proper? Article one, the legislature. The legislature is the beating heart of a republic. The elected legislators who stand up for their constituents, those people entrusted with rulemaking authority. The original constitution contained a lot of relics of the world of 1787. Travel was difficult and time consuming. The internet would have been considered magic to them. Modern economics, trade, science, medicine, sociology, those were all barely glimmers on a distant horizon to them. So let's take a step back and let's ask ourselves in a representative government, who do the representatives represent? It's the most fundamental question but it's the question we have to start with. It's easy to say the people, and that's a correct answer, but I don't think it's a complete one. First of all, just the words the people themselves contain two possibilities. When you say the people, are you talking about the people in their totality? Or are you talking about the the individuals that they represent, those individuals with all their idiosyncrasies and beliefs? But then aside from those two constituencies, there's another one that we've forgotten, but which really ought to be given consideration here as well. And that's the states themselves. We were founded as a federation of states. People throw around the phrase, the laboratory of the states a lot. Sometimes they throw it around for good reasons and sometimes for ill, frankly, but it's a phrase that we've come to know and accept. And we've moved past that, unfortunately. I think that's to our detriment. 
The best governance on most issues comes from those people closest to their constituencies. Just like parents make better decisions about how to raise their children than teachers, so too do local governments make better decisions than national ones. And that's not to say that all parents will make the best decisions. Not all local governments will make the best decisions. Far from it. They will make mistakes, absolutely. But those mistakes will be fewer. And, and I think this is maybe the most critical component, they'll be less impactful than wrong decisions made at the national level. So then I would suggest we have three constituencies. We have the individuals that form the nation. We have the nation as a whole. And we have the states that comprise that nation. And so I think it makes sense to craft a legislative structure that answers to those three constituencies. A House of Representatives for the individuals, a Senate for the states, and some third legislative body that represents all of us. Let's start with the House of Representatives. What does it mean to represent individuals? The current House purports to do that, but how many of us can truly say our representatives represent us personally? How many of us have even met our sitting House members or any House member, frankly? Currently, a member of the House of Representatives rep represents approximately 764,000 human beings. The number of House members has not changed since 1911, when the population was roughly a quarter of what it was now. And why should it? House members are more powerful the fewer of them there are. What incentive do they have to propose a rule change that would dilute their own power and prestige? And that's the crux of why these kinds of changes are necessary. They're not sexy changes. They don't inspire passion or inflamed rhetoric, but it's obvious that asking any one person to represent a constituency as vast as a quarter of a million people is, is like asking them to perform some sort of Sisyphean task that's just not possible for a human to do. So I think the solution is obvious. Let's not ask that of them. The original constitution prescribed a maximum threshold to the House of Representatives. It said, one per 30,000 people. I say we take them up on that offer. One representative per 30,000 people. It'd be some 11,000 representatives, which sounds like an absurd number. But I think we've got to ask ourselves, is it really actually that absurd? In a world in which they often meet and have in-person discussions, absolutely. Just trying to get 435 people for an in-person vote is difficult. Letting them all speak before a bill is passed is time-consuming. Trying to form a consensus can feel impossible. But those are limitations born of an era with no internet. Why are we beholden to that particular constraint? We shouldn't be. Let's suppose we elected 11,000 representatives. What would that even look like? Well, they'd necessarily be real, true, blue citizen legislators. Many of them could work from home. They'd cast votes as needed and offer support or suggestions for areas of interest or personal knowledge, but otherwise they'd likely live pretty normal lives, uh, a life connected to their constituents, which I think is a good thing. Their compensation wouldn't need to be high, nor their staff large. We currently pay House members $174,000 each. That's almost $76 million right there. 
Their staff and office expenses for 2018 were another $562 million. So you're at about $640 million just in salaries. What if we paid each of our part-time representatives $90,000 per year? And they could hire whomever they want with that money or nobody at all. The cost would be about $990 million. That's pretty small. It's a real pittance, frankly, of an increase in the grand scheme of things above the $638 million that it currently costs us. But what would we get for that money? Well, we'd get representatives that came to our local swim meets, representatives that were members of our local PTA. There'd be so many of them with such limited power that money wouldn't flow to them in the way it does right now. They'd actually represent us. And, and isn't that what we want? I think that's a good goal. I think it's a just goal. Elect representatives who actually represent us. It doesn't sound unreasonable. But we haven't dealt with one of the particularly nasty byproducts of our current system. We have two parties. Unless we change something, we'll always have two parties. Our system encourages it, it incentivizes it, it pretty much demands it. So what then can we do about this? Well, we could just ban a two-party system, but there would still be two dominant parties. Expanding the house to 10,000 people would accomplish a small erosion of that as well, but I don't think it would be sufficient for lasting change. I think here too, a more radical solution is necessary. So let's suppose for the sake of argument that instead of one representative per 30,000 people, let's say we elected three per 100,000. Well, what would that look like? What would happen? Imagine a general election in which five people run and the top three vote getters got the three spots. I think there's some benefits here that we should explore. First, in areas where one party is incredibly strong, it still provides a decent prospect for a second party to have representation. In our current system, if 50.1% of people vote for one guy, then that person represents all of those people, regardless of how thin that margin was. Second, it creates an obvious opening for third parties. And as those third parties grow and mature, they'll inevitably become more relevant, challenging any existing two-party system that might manifest. Third, it becomes much more difficult to gerrymander districts. Gerrymandering for two-party setups is trivially easy. With a computer and detailed maps and a bit of time, you can come up with the ideal map for carving up constituencies in the most advantageous way. In one instance of modern-day gerrymandering, the defense offered up by the legislators who drew the map was essentially, this map is perfect because there's no way to get another seat for my party. That's a, that's a real real quote and a real sentiment from a, a particular group. But try gerrymandering when the top three vote-getters get seats. Suddenly there's a lot more guesswork that would occur, a lot of unpredictability, particularly in a world where there's strong third parties. So what would the elections look like? Well, I would propose that each incumbent would automatically be granted a spot on the ballot. I think each party could further nominate a single individual. And I think a spot should be reserved for unaffiliated voters who might feel that no party speaks for them. I think the obvious question there 
And the big change would be why would the incumbents be granted an automatic spot in the general election? Well, personally, I think primaries are kind of foolish endeavors that serve only to divide and polarize us and take up time and money. Representatives should represent all of us. They shouldn't be subject to ideological purity, purity tests simply to have the right to try to win our vote for a seat they've already held. If a party wants to put up a new candidate, so be it. But requiring sitting representatives to periodically go through this gauntlet every few years creates the impression that they answer first to their party and second to their constituency. And I don't think we should be allowing that kind of structure with those kinds of incentives to exist. Thanks for listening to me drone on about all this. Uh, there's a lot more to discuss about the general structure of the House of Representatives. Uh, in the next episode, we'll talk more about the role that parties play and how that should change along with what congressional leadership would even look like under this massive expansion of the House. We'll also explore the fundamental changes in the Electoral College that might result from these changes as well. So I hope you join us. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Federalist 2.0. My name is Jeff. You can reach me at federalistreboot at gmail.com. Please remember to like and subscribe. Apparently, giving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really helps, so if you're using that service, please do that. And until next time, thank you and goodbye.